So this morning, before we um, pick up where we left off last week, in the midst of um, we left off in the midst of Peter's denials, in the midst of Jesus's trial before the high priest after his arrest. But before we pick that up there in John chapter 18, I want to make an Old Testament connection. You have to use a little bit of your um, thinking caps uh, this morning. Um, In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, specifically between chapters 41 and 55, the prophet describes... um, throughout those chapters, uh, two different servants of the Lord. So it is prophetic language, it is poetic language. Um, But clearly, as we see these servants, this first servant that he describes is blind, rebellious, and fearful. But God will choose this servant, choose to use this servant as a witness. And he even promises to redeem this servant. This is the nation of Israel. Then the second servant is obedient. He is submissive and he suffers unjustly. And God promises to uphold him, promises to use this servant to bring Israel and the nations back to God and to bring about the restoration of justice in the world. The second servant is the Messiah, the Christ. I would submit to you, the Bible would submit to you, that this is this Jesus of Nazareth that is on trial before us today. I'm going to read three passages from Isaiah that describe this second servant. So see if you can catch glimpses of Jesus that John, the Jesus that John is revealing to us throughout his gospel as I read these to you. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 42. I read part of this before. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, 1 to 9 says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes from it who gives breath to the people on it, spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare. They are, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now flip over to chapter 49, if you're there in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 1. It says this. 
Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb will be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on heights shall be the pasture. They shall not thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, they shall come from the north and from the west. These shall come from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. Then just a couple more verses in chapter 50. Turn one page over. Chapter 50, verse 4 says this. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was rebellious. I turned backward. I gave my to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Now, turn over to John chapter 18. 
New Testament. I'm going to read verses 12 to 27. This is where we are today. Really this week and last week as well. So John 18 verse 12 says this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas for he was a father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard uh, me what I said to them uh, that they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Okay, let's stop and pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand today. We acknowledge that we are a needy people, that we need Christ. And so I pray that you would help us to see, to hear, and to understand and be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we began this passage, looking really at verses 12 down through um, about 18, um, I told you to keep your eyes on Peter. Keep your eyes on Peter throughout this passage. He's the leader of the disciples. He has come to this evening ready to fight and to die for the the sake of the kingdom of Christ. He has confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet Jesus himself told him, no, no, put away your sword. He must have been, Peter must have been more than a little confused, humiliated, And as his Lord, as his master, is hauled off into an illegal hearing before really what can only be described as a deposed high priest, a servant girl presents him with a choice. Deny his Lord and so fulfill what Christ had said, or confess that he is, in fact, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And when confronted with this question, Peter lies. 
confronted by this servant girl, a young girl at the door. He lies. He says, I am not. In fact, as we saw last week, he has the very opposite reaction, the very opposite response that Jesus had when he was questioned just a few um, verses earlier. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. You're not a disciple too, are you? I am not. Because Peter is human, or really we should say maybe because Peter is a sinner in need of a savior, and because in a way he represents all of Christ's disciples here, including us, he's probably afraid that he's going to be humiliated again. I think he's afraid that his pride will be hurt if this young girl says to him, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come in. But again, if you have put yourself in Peter's shoes, you might remember that when the shepherd was struck, he didn't scatter with the others. He had said, I will fight and I will die for you. He was given access now to the high priest. And as we left off last week, we saw that, that Peter was standing in the way of sinners, warming himself by their fire. Yet Jesus... The man who is righteous, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, Jesus, who is inside, is bound like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is inside preparing to do the work necessary, or really in the process of doing the work necessary to give his righteousness to Peter, to impute his righteousness to all who will trust in him for salvation. Why? So that we might be called blessed. So that we might be called blessed through him. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, Peter was a sinner. Not because he denied Christ on that cold night, but because he was born in the line of Adam. Because he was born as a human. Because he was born. But thanks be to God, Jesus' righteousness is granted to all who would believe in him by faith. Not merely believe that he exists. Right? That's not what we're talking about when we talk about believing in Jesus. The soldiers and servants standing by the fire alongside Peter, they believe in that way. They believe that Jesus exists. He's right inside the high priest's house. He's on trial. They bound him. They arrested him. More than that, even the high priest, even the priests inside in this trial have seen some of the results of Jesus' miracles. Not, Not the least of which was they heard about Lazarus. 
In John chapter 11, when he called Lazarus from the grave, and a man that had been dead for three days came walking out of the grave. They knew that. They knew that he had power over the wind and the waves, that he could silence them and walk on them. They knew that he had power over um, loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. They knew that he had power over life and death. And they set it in their hearts to destroy him. They believed who he was, but Peter believes in him by faith. This is about all who will trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Because every Christian, every Christian is always and only a Christian. Every Christian is always and only a Christian because they are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not inherited. It's not because, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm not something else. Every Christian is always and only saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we pick the story back up this morning by moving back inside. Back into this trial before the high priest. So outside, Peter is standing with the servants and the officers. He is standing and warming himself by the fire. And inside, Jesus is with the high priest and with the other officials being questioned. He is also bound. He is under arrest. So remember, in verses 12 to 14, John makes it clear that Jesus is before Annas who's not legally the high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas is. But Annas is clearly the power behind the Jewish religious leadership. And even John calls him the high priest throughout these next several verses here. Yet in these verses, I think what John is doing is he's being vague about who this high priest is. So we can follow the argument. We can see that he's talking about Annas. But Annas isn't really the high priest. Caiaphas is. But he's calling him the high priest. Look at verses 19 and 24. I just I want you to see this. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And then down at the end of that paragraph, in verse 24, it says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I think John is doing this in John is doing this intentionally. So that his readers would um, not be confused but would rather see the confusion that ungodliness brings to the role of an earthly high priest. And therefore, what John is doing is pointing at a true and better high priest, the high priest of a better covenant. And I also want to point out one other detail here. John tells us nothing about the trial before Caiaphas, the actual high priest. So in verse 24, he's sent to Caiaphas, it says. That's where the real trial should happen, the real hearing. Then in verses 25, 6, and 7, the, she, the scene shifts back outside to Peter. And then look at verse 28. We'll get at this next week, Lord willing. But verse 28 says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. He brings him before Pilate, goes before the Romans. John skips the trial before Caiaphas, and I think probably for two reasons. And the first is that Caiaphas and his court, the Sanhedrin, they had already sentenced Jesus back in John chapter 11. 
Verse 57 says this, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he would let them know so that they might arrest him. They'd already issued a warrant for his arrest. And those arrest orders, those came on the heels of Caiaphas' plan when he said it would be more expedient that one man should die for the people. So as I've been getting at here, I really think the second reason that John skips um, this second Jewish hearing and is kind of intentionally vague about which high priest Jesus is interacting with here, I think it's because there is yet a different high priest in charge here. There is a third high priest. It's not Annas. It's not Caiaphas. In Hebrews chapter 7 Verses 23 to 28 describes this third high priest like this. So see if you can identify him. Hebrews 7, 23 says, The former high priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the real high priest in charge here. And Jesus here in John chapter 18 is in the process of offering up himself to make an atonement for the sins of the people. That's what we're seeing. And yet because these high priests, Annas, Caiaphas, too many in number, by the way, because these high priests are, are not holy, they're not innocent, they're not unstained, they're not separated from sinners, and they're certainly not exalted high above the heavens, this high priest questions Jesus in order to put a stop to his ministry, to stop what he is doing. And so Annas comes at Jesus really with two lines of questioning. He questions him about his disciples, and then he questions him about the doctrine or his teaching. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is a, this is a common worldly strategy. I don't want to go too far down this, this rabbit trail. Um, but during this pandemic, panic, whatever you want to call it, there have been and there continue to be many worldly strategies to keep us from attending church. To separate you from your Savior is really the strategy. So on the one hand, the world says, so just live stream. It's okay, just live stream. We're doing it now. But on the other hand, Many of the video sharing companies are beginning more and more, slowly but surely, to restrict content that they deem offensive. You can see how this will play out down the road, right? Just live stream, it's safer that way. Eh, we don't like what you're saying. 
Now, I want to be clear. Nobody's shut off our church. <laughs> we are uh, small potatoes in the Internet world. But it's beginning to happen here and there. And let me also say this. There are genuine health reasons to stay away from the church gathering for a time. In fact, there's some that are away today for genuine reasons for a time. This is a real virus. There are real other viruses and sicknesses out there. It has caused, this virus has caused real and serious health concerns and even death. And some of you, some people in our church, have felt those things to one degree or another. But when the government issues a mask mandate, for example, and your response is, well, then I'm not going to church. When they say that, and that's how we respond, the world wins. And I realize I'm saying this to people who are gathered here today. <laughs> Let me give you another example. I, I had the opportunity several years ago to walk through the catacombs under the city of Rome. And besides being a place of underground worship for persecuted Christians in the first uh, couple of centuries uh, after Christ's ascension, it was also a place for those Christians to bury their dead. And one of the most striking features to me of the Roman catacombs is the huge number of graves that were clearly for children. Clearly, small little cubbies in the sides of the tunnels for children to be put in. One of the ways in which the pagan government worked to convince Christians to renounce their faith, their faith in Jesus Christ, was to torture and then kill their children in front of them. There were many ways that they did this, worked to get Christians to worship Caesar as well. They didn't care about Christ, they just wanted to be sure that he worshiped Caesar. There are many ways that they got people, Christians, to renounce their faith. This was one of the most effective. You can imagine why. And so please, I beg of you, do not forsake the assembly together simply because a government issues a mask mandate. And again, I'm not talking about those who are caring for immunocompromised family. There are those among us who are watching, doing that. They're live streaming. I'm talking about those of us who are tempted to forsake meeting together because of a government restriction. I feel the temptation too, believe me. And now I will admit that was a little bit of a tangent. Um, take it for what it's worth. But frankly, we don't know what the high priest asked Jesus about these disciples. Back in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. We don't know if the questioning was limited to the 12. Who were those guys with you when we arrested you? We don't know if that went beyond that to the larger crowds that had followed him over the last couple of years. We don't know if he asked for names. We don't know if they asked for addresses of followers and giving records of followers. But when Jesus answers, and the reason we don't know what he really asks is because when Jesus answers him, he doesn't talk about the disciples at all. He's still protecting them. Remember what he had said when they took him into custody. He said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. 
Yet we know that, that witnesses to his teachings, they, they should actually be easy to find. He's been teaching everywhere, including in the synagogues and, and even in the temple. He's done this for three years. And during all of that time, the legal experts were unable to refute his teaching. And remember, his first conflict with the Jews, with the Jewish leadership, that happened, at least the first one recorded in John's gospel, that happens all the way back in chapter 2 when he first drove out the money changers out of the temple. So look again here at what he says in verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple and where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And with this answer, with this answer here, Jesus is setting an example to us. I have always spoken openly to the world. So this is maybe our application do you speak openly about your faith? Are you able to defend your beliefs to an increasingly hostile world? Is your pat answer, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Is that your kind of bumper sticker answer? That's not an answer that the world will accept. Or do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Paul had something to say about all of this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. We should speak openly of what we believe. We should speak openly of the truth to the world. We cannot hide behind disgraceful, underhanded, sleight-of-hand type ministry. The old um, Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, he's been dead for a couple hundred years, he said this. He said, the doctrine of Christ, purely and plainly preached, needs not to be ashamed to appear in the most numerous assembly, for it carries its own strength and beauty along with it. What Christ's faithful ministers say, they should be willing all the world to hear. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. But not only is Jesus modeling ministry for us, He's also saying something very important right here. See, with this statement in verses 20 and 21, Jesus is demanding that the high priest try him correctly under Mosaic law, which in Mosaic law required not the, not the questioning of the suspect. They weren't supposed to question Jesus. They were supposed to listen to the testimony of two or three witnesses, at least two or three witnesses. So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 says it explicitly. A single witness shall not suffice against any person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. But that's not what's happening here, and they know it. 
And instead of following the law, one of these officers, one of these soldiers slapped him and acted as an accuser. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. It's an open-handed slap. Saying, is that how you answer the high priest? That's an accusatory question. Think of the irony. This is akin to someone saying, do you know who you're talking to? He's Annas. He's the high priest. Is he, though? Is Annas the high priest really? Or, or is Caiaphas the high priest? And he's not even here. Or is it someone else altogether? Is that how you answer the high priest? That question should have been asked of the officer who slapped him. Is that how you treat the capital H, high, capital P, priest? Is that how you treat the true high priest? Do you know who he is? But truly, as Jesus would say later, they know not what they do. And he maintains his composure. He utters no self-defense here, really. He simply just points back to the law. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? They needed witnesses, and they had none. Can you see the irony of the Jewish religious leadership? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the experts of the law, who tithed from their, their spice rack, they gave a tenth of everything. They followed the law studiously and fastidiously. They followed the law to the letter, and they're breaking the law right here. And he points it out to them. And they strike him for it. They're disregarding God's law. Now, let's just shift gears for just a minute. I want to ask you this. What is it in John's gospel? What is it that Jesus is on trial for at this point? What is it that he is on trial for in John's Gospels as John is unfolding this for us? We actually don't know the formal charges yet, except for what we read all the way back in chapter 11, when Caiaphas had his hearing against Jesus. Verse 48 of chapter 11 says this, one of the priests, an, an anonymous person at the trial said this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These are the charges against him. This is a hard-hearted denial. They're denying God's law. They're denying God's word. They're denying the law that they forced upon others and tried to enforce others to keep. The law of which David wrote these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. They don't believe a word of that. That's Psalm 19. They don't believe a word of that. They are rejecting all of this. Not only are they rejecting Christ, not only are they rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ, they're also breaking God's law. And it's clear that Christ's words from chapter 5 are at play in all of this. He had said this, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. They should have been questioning Judas. That's what they should have been doing. He was the witness. But actually, it shouldn't have even gotten that far because they only had one witness and they had to bribe him. They should have been questioning Judas and at least one other. But as far as John is concerned, Judas is gone. He doesn't even talk about him again. He is completely out of the picture. John doesn't tell us anything else about him. That witness is gone. Look at verse 24. Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. At this point, John, in writing this, he's still kind of muddying the high priestly waters, so to speak. So I said this before, um, but we're, what we're supposed to see here is that we're, we're either supposed to say this when we read verse 24. If you're just reading this chapter, if you're just reading John's gospel, you're supposed to get to verse 24 and say, wait a minute, who's the high priest? Are there two of them? Or... We're supposed to come to the conclusion that neither of these guys is the real high priest. And again, it's interesting that John doesn't even tell us about the trial before Caiaphas. The other gospel writers do, but John doesn't even mention it. There's one simple reason, I think, for all of this. And that is that Jesus is the true high priest. So we've seen this already. But not only is he the high priest, he's also the judge. Do you see that the high priest is sitting in judgment over Jesus? He's got two high priests that are judging him, that are presiding over this trial. But Jesus is the real judge. Listen to what he had said back in John chapter 5. It's 5.22. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And they are not honoring the Son. Therefore, they are not honoring the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Remember Lazarus? The dead heard the voice of the Son of God, and those who heard lived. They've seen all of this evidence and they're still rejecting him and they're sitting in judgment over him. And because they're rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God the Father. This is truly a cosmic battle. The true high priest, rejected and despised by men, is bound and sent from one priestly intercessor to another. And they're rejecting God's law and they are dishonoring God's Son. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Meanwhile, back outside, 
Look at verses 25 to 27. Simon Peter is standing, warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy. So while an unholy, illegal travesty, a miscarriage of God's justice is taking place inside, another atrocity is taking place outside in the courtyard. One of Jesus' closest disciples, in fact their leader and frequent spokesman, he's still standing in the way of sinners around the fire warming himself. He's trying to make himself comfortable with the world. And he very clearly here, you can see it with your own eyes, he very clearly here denies his Savior two more times. So let me ask you this question. Why would Jesus prophesy that this would happen? Why would Jesus let this happen? Or even we could say, why did Jesus orchestrate these things? I think there are actually a lot of answers to that question. And we don't have time to go through them all today. Some of them are big picture answers of Christ establishing his church based on the confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But I want to focus just for a couple seconds on a couple of personal answers. Answers that are personal for Peter, this man that we have had our eyes on through this event. The first is this. They really are connected. The first is this. Not only did Christ prophesy that Simon Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, before dawn, right? Not only did he prophesy that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed, but he also said this in the midst of that prophecy. In Luke 22, he, Luke tells us this. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Did you catch the other part of that prophecy? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, Jesus said. This is a test of Peter's faith. But it's only the beginning. Peter needed not to be humiliated. That wasn't the point of all of this. But it was that he needed to be humbled. There's a famous quote um, that goes, or the meme goes around Facebook every, uh, every once in a while. I see it frequently. The quote is this. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. It's attributed to Spurgeon, although he didn't ever say it. Um, the closest quote that we can find, and I think it's actually better than that, although that one's pretty good. In an 1874 sermon entitled Sin and Grace, he said this, The wave of temptation may even wash you higher up upon the rock of ages so that you cling to it with a firmer grip than you have ever done before. And so again, where sin abounds, grace will much more abound. 
I think that's a better quote. Because Peter would come to know full well that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. When he gave in to this temptation, I, I, don't, I don't know him. I am not a disciple of Jesus. When he gave in to this temptation, grace abounded all the more. His temptation drove him higher up upon the rock of ages. And the second answer for Peter as to why Jesus would prophesy like this, it really is connected to that first answer. It's because in Peter's humble repentance, Jesus will restore him. Jesus will vividly remind him that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he's going to use him to establish his church. Three times later in chapter 21 of John's gospel, three times Jesus will say to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times he will also say, when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. He will then say, then, then feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. As the gospel begins to spread to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts, following Christ's ascension, Peter will clearly be back in his position of leadership among the apostles, and John will be right at his side. And what do we see him doing more than anything else? We see him strengthening the brothers. That's what Jesus had said in Luke chapter 22, that he had prayed for him. That when you have returned, strengthen the brothers. That's what we see Peter doing in the book of Acts. We see him tending Christ's sheep. We see him boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in front of this very court, even in front of these very same men, just a couple months after this. So that by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, we read this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These guys. These guys that Peter was afraid of. I'm telling you all of this in this way so that you can be assured as John will write later in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does that for Peter. And also John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus advocated for Peter. He interceded for Peter even before Peter sinned, even before he denied him. The same is true for us, Christian. Christ is praying for us. He always lives to intercede for us, Hebrews tells us. And so as we finish this morning, I just want to briefly point out one last thing. I want you to consider why John arranged this portion of his gospel, this book, in this way, with this back and forth, inside, outside, back inside, back outside. 
So many sermons, so many commentaries on this portion of Scripture, they kind of treat these things, these two, uh, Peter's denials and, and the, the trial before the high priest, they treat them as separate events. But John wrote them, like we see here, all intertwined together, inside, outside, back inside, back outside. I think it's because he wanted us to see both the corrupt unbelief of the Jewish leadership and this cowardly denial of Christ by his own head disciple. Jesus wants us, or John rather in writing this, and Jesus by inspiring this, wants us to see Jesus in this, even though our attention is clearly on the sinners, both of them, Peter and the high priest. He wants us to see Jesus. He's comparing Jesus with the sinners inside and with the sinner outside. And the simple conclusion that we have to draw this morning is this, Christ alone is the one that we can trust. Christ alone is the one who perfectly fulfills God's law and gives that righteousness to those who will trust in him. Christ alone is the one who perfectly fulfills God's justice. In Christ alone is mercy and justice and grace and repentance and salvation and yes, even restoration. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Father, I pray that even as we look at Peter in this, that our eyes would not, um, would not leave Jesus. That our eyes would not be taken off of our Savior. The one who saves to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Those who trust in him. Father, we are grateful that for all who have called upon the name of Christ... We are saved, and there is therefore now no condemnation. Help us to believe these things, to trust in these things, to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.